Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cougar News Hug Podcast. My name is Isel. And I'm Denise. And we're going to be talking to you about World War II and what it was like in El Paso, Texas. El Paso, the place we call our home, a place that we often forget, has history of its own. Each step we take around the city has to do with history, whether it be old or new. In the podcast, we are going to be talking about an average day in the life of an El Paso woman and what El Paso did to contribute to World War II. Hey, don't forget about the children. Oh, you're right. We're going to be talking about the daily struggles of a child in World War II. But stay tuned, because you don't know what secrets we have in store. Hello, my name is Tyler Jacobson, and today I will t- be talking to you about the main what World War II was mainly about, and how did El Paso get involved. Now, World War II was mainly a fight between two groups, the Axis and the Allies. Each group contained three countries. The Axis contained Japan, Germany, and Italy. While the Axis, or not the Axis, my bad, uh, the Allies consisted of America, Russia, and Great Britain. Now, the main goal for the Axis was to take over the world, because a guy, um, the leader of Germany, who was practically, Germany was kind of the head of the Axis idea, alliances, uh, wanted to take, uh, the leader of Germany, yeah, like I said before, um, wanted to take over the whole world, really. That and also get Germany back into its former glory, which was before World War One. Now, the main goal of the Allied powers was to keep the Axis from taking over the world. So they they kept Great Britain kept Germany from invading. Um, Invading their land, uh, America didn't get involved until December seventh, nineteen forty-one, when the Japanese attacked a naval base in Hawaii called Pearl Harbor, which was a day that will we will all live in infamy. Now, how did El Paso get involved? Was that big? Supplied us with like a company. They supplied us with men and supplies, mostly like clothing, because the main cash crop, well, the main material kind of crop was cotton, and practically most uniforms, military uniforms, my bad, um, contain wool. 
So that uh, when they're in like Germany or France or Denmark or Belgium, they will stay warm. And now they also supplied us with men. What I mean by this is they uh, men and women, sorry, because they also gave. There were some women who were in the WAC organization or Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, which was where women filled the filled the, filled up the jobs of men, but in like m like in the military, like they flew supplies, they flew missions to drop supplies, uh, they created grenades, bombs, and bullets, and planes as well, like bombers. They were the main person who built the planes. And then there were, El Paso gave us um, a company that consisted mostly of, um, of men who were, who had, who had like a, an ethnical uh, background of like Latino, or, yeah, Mexican. It's, and, countries around that area and they caught that company was known as E Company and I believe the 141st infantry, infantry division yeah now that's really what El Paso really did like to help out during the war other than like supply foods like crash caught crash Crops, my bad, and men and people who wanted to fight or help out at least. But other than that, um, that was it. Mostly it was like supplying the material to make uniforms, supplying men and women to help out with the cores, like the whack in uh, the 141st Infantry Division. And so, I believe Izzy has something to tell you. Thanks, Tyler, for that wonderful synopsis on World War II. I'm going to be talking about women and what their contributions to the war effort were, not only on the battlefield, but at home, and how these women paved the roads for today's world. Many women enlisted in the armed forces. In fact, 140,000 women joined the WACs, and 100,000 women joined the WAVES. These women challenged gender norms, so much so that in the summer of 1943, it was decided by Congress that women needed full benefits and the auxiliary was dropped, creating the Women's Army Corps. And women were finally given equal rank and pay as their male counterparts and were officially enlisted in the U.S. Army. Because of the severe shortage of manpower, the goal of WAC was to take over non-combatant roles in the U.S. Army in order to free up men for the battlefield. Not only did women help on the battlefield, but they also helped here. In fact, in Texas, women and girls worked in fields and in factories. In fact, El Paso was one of a few placers that did garment work. 
In our labor unions, there was a significant change that occurred during World War II. Before the war, working class women would find a union man to marry because marrying a union man represented a positive step in status. In fact, daughters of a union member, Jewel Brittle and her sister, Caroline, believed their husband's union cards provided them with a degree of security and respectability. However, this changed when security became more available to women directly during World War II. As a result of the increase in women members, the AFL, the CEO, and independent unions empathized issues such as equal pay, protective legislation, and social programs, which addressed the needs of women workers everywhere. According to El Centro History Department's Chapter 5, The More We Get Together, the most surprising aspect of the wartime was not how often working women followed the advice of critics, experts, and the media, but how often and how many working-class women behaved contrary to the messages they received. The conflicts and contradictions in their culture and behavior reflected the nature of a transitional period in history. Often, many statements made about the women were not what they agreed with compared to their regular everyday lives. More than 22,000 Texas men and women died during the war. Many of the dead no doubt belonged to Company E. Company E was a group of Mexican-American soldiers sent overseas on essentially a suicide mission. All of the men were either killed or captured until they were rescued six months later by Russian forces. The war effort brought massive changes throughout the United States. Automobile manufacturers began producing aircraft engines and tanks. Steel workers began producing bullets, and clothing manufacturers began producing uniforms. And as men went off to war, women who usually stayed home began looking for work. The women's auxiliaries represented the only labor organization totally dominated by women and revealed how willing working class women were to participate in national and world affairs. This marked a dynamic period in history. And even though maintaining membership was difficult, those who continued their involvement worked on the behalf of all working class women. Despite these women facing many adversities, such as sexism in their workplace and going against stereotypical norms at this time period, they stood tall and stuck up for what they believed in. Several union and auxiliary women testified in congressional hearings and served on commissions to study problems. However, this was only a stepping stone in the right direction for today's world because many working class women had little input in the development of their programs. However, their stance has started to shift societal norms in today's world. In fact, women can be found in almost every job throughout the United States, whether it be construction, running for political office, or in the military, which shows that these women's efforts weren't in vain. They contributed to today's world. One of these women was Irene Keene England. She was born in El Paso, Texas. 
She was a woman aviator who piloted military aircrafts during World War II as a member of the Woman Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP. Throughout her service, she served for 18 months transporting air inspectors and medical patients, ferrying military aircrafts, and towing aerial gunnery targets to free men for combat overseas. Because she was such a skilled pilot, she was one of a handful of women to be awarded veteran status by the military in a time where such a thing was unheard of. Now let's hand this show over to Denise, where she's going to be going further into depth about whack. Hey guys, Denise here. Okay, let's go to the next topic. Even though women did so much work in factories, they also did one more thing called whack. What is whack, you might ask? Well, whack is the women's army corps. In other words, was the women's branch of the United States Army. It was created an auxiliary unit, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, WAAC, as WAC, on the 15th of May, 1942, by public law, and converted to an active duty status in the Army of the United States, as the WAC on the 1st of July, 1943. Its first director was Oviera Culp Hobby a prominent woman in Texas society. The WAC was disbanded in 1978, and all units were integrated with male units. Now on to our next question. What did WAC do? Intentionally, they were only meant to serve as cooks and bakers, telephone and radio operators, drivers and clerks. Eventually, that was dropped. They would branch out into many diverse jobs as chiropractors, medical technicians, lawyers, pilots, and more. Women worked alongside the Manhattan Project, or as known as the creation of the atomic bomb, and some were even assigned into anti-aircraft artillery unit for some short time. What was the goal for WAC? During the war, there was a severe manpower shortage. The goal for WAC was essentially to ease that shortage and free a man to fight, meaning that women were supposed to take over in non-combat roles in the U.S. Army in order to free men up for battlefield. It was thought that this would bring the end of the war sooner. Our next question is, were there any El Paso slash U.S. women who served in WAC? Yes, approximately 210,000 army women from all over the country served in World War II. Unfortunately, we don't know the exact number for El Paso women, but the ones that we came across is Hermina Alvarez and Ana Louise Stanton. Our next question is, where were the training camps located? The first WAC training camp center was located in Fort Des Moines in Iowa. This is where the majority of WACs were trained. However, other training centers at Daytona Beach in Florida, Fort Oglethorpe in Georgia, if I pronounce that wrong, I apologize. 
in Fort Davens in Massachusetts and Camp Rustin in Louisiana were instrumental as well. Now, let's continue to our next question. How did society react to whack? Well, people act differently. Some thought that the whack was a good idea and many women jumped at the chance to contribute in the war effort. Shortly after the creation of WAC, a slander campaign was started by the media which attempted to disparage women from enlisting in WAC. People gossiped about WAC's being immoral and frightened about gender roles, being overthrown. There was a significant worry about women not being home to raise their children. Now on to our last and final question. Does WAC still exist? The Women's Army Corps was established in 1978 when women and men were integrated together. Instead of serving under the WAC branch of the Army, women are directly assigned to the branch of the Army from the Quartermaster Corps to the Infantry. Finally, I want to talk about the propaganda photos of women, especially the most famous Rosie the Riveter and the We Can Do It poster. Rosie the Riveter is a cultural icon of World War II, representing the women who worked in factories and shipyards during World War II, many of whom produced munitions and war supplies. These women sometimes took entirely new jobs replacing the male workers who joined the military. Rosie the Riveter is used as a symbol of American feminism and women's economic power. Ugh, aren't you guys tired from all that information? Because you know I am. So it's time for a little dance party! Whoop whoop! needed that oh my mind is cleared now that was great 
now let's move on to the next subject, shall we? Hi guys, so I'm here with a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, um, my name is Adriana Diaz and I'm here with Izzy. So I can ask her a very important question about World War II. So Izzy, um, could you, would you mind telling me how kids lived in, during World War II? You know, that is a very good question. And in fact, we have an interview with a, with a little kid who's not so little anymore, in fact, <laughs> that told us about his life in World War II. Some of the things that he talks about is the average day, what he would do when his mom wasn't home, and what life was really like. When you were a little kid during World War II, yeah. like around that time, um, what did you used to do for fun? Uh, we'd sneak down to the Lake Washington. One of the kids in the neighborhood fell in and almost drowned. That was what you did for fun, you watched? Yeah, crawl around. There was nobody there. It was like a ghost town. The cops are all gone. Very few policemen. The teachers all left. Everybody left. Then your mom was gone most of the day working at deal, so you had to have a housekeeper. So while mom was gone, me and my brother decided to go into the neighbor's garage they had a wood floor and roast potatoes, and we set this garage on fire. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. What about um, ration-wise? Like, and now, let us see what he had to say. You know, um, food-wise, oh, yeah. how did rations affect you as a little kid? Like, did it? How did that affect you? They affect gave you? us a school lunch of one little tiny half pint. Milk and some two gram crackers. That was our school lunch. That's all you got for lunch? Yeah, that's wow. all they gave out. That's crazy. Things were, there was meat was rationed, sugar was rationed. There was nobody there. One time when this war started, there was cars parked in front of every, out in front of every house. When the war came, there wasn't any cars. They all junked them and made them into tanks and boats. And the gas ration, you had to have like a real important job to get gas. Either that or you had to ride the electrical trolley cars they had. And everything was black. Everybody put black out. They were really afraid the Japanese were coming. So everybody had to have their houses blacked out. How about um, like toy-wise? How did you get like little like toys? Did you have did you have to make them or did you not get any? There just wasn't any. There just wasn't any. Did you make any or did you? Oh yeah, we made made uh, took old roller skates and made like skateboard stuff. Um, little cars to set on. Then we had an old barn we tore down on the property in Seattle and we used that to make forts. And then tunnel. We tunneled a lot and made little forts. Other kids would come from other neighborhoods and we'd bite them off. There was no supervision. There really wasn't any supervision for kids. 
Like your mom and daddy were real, real, real rich. There was no supervision. We'd, me and my brother would walk to the University of Washington, part around on the campus. How old were you when you did that? So in the whole town, was how many police officers were there? Two. There was two? Yeah. Was that all that was left? Oh, no. I mean, there was more than that, but they were all 4F. They couldn't get in the military because they were at heart conditions. Or they'd never been able to get in the police force today. All the men were gone. All the boys, young men were gone. All of the... Everybody was gone. Even my school teacher, my first grade school teacher, she come walking in in an army uniform, busted my heart. She was really pretty. I really liked her. Did she join the army? Yes. Did she join the WAC? Yeah. And uh, just everybody. There was no. Everybody was gone. At night, all the lights were off in the city, and we ride the bus. What did it, um, whenever you've, what did it feel like to, to be at, at like, in constant conflict? Did you feel scared while you, when you were little? No. Or was it just... No, it was really exciting, because we're, they have that P-38 with a wing, with a, right in the middle of the wing, a little tiny fuselage, and then, then two things out on the side, it was like a box, P-38. So were you extremely excited to see all the happenings of the war? Yeah, because there's some guys, some planes, bombers would fly over and the guys would start throwing the toilet paper out. <laughs> Us kids would run and they'd come down in the air and we'd see, because it come out of the plane, everybody wanted some of the toilet paper. Some guy was bombing us with toilet paper. <laughs> That's really cute. Yeah, the roads would unwind. <laughs> there's always something. There's, and the news, you know. There was no good news at the first Don't feel so sad There was no good We were getting our ass kicked in by the Japanese. Everything was bad. Then the Japanese were coming over to the coast of Washington State and sending up balloons off something. Fire bombs. They set forest fires. Did you ever listen? started getting good reports. From the uh, well, better ones, you know, but we are still losing soldiers like terrible in the Pacific. The Germans, once we got going on them, we lost a lot there, but we didn't get a lot. There wasn't a lot of candy, there was no candy to speak of. Movies you could go see for five cents, you know. Uh, everything was scarce. Everything went into the world. People today don't know how to sacrifice for their country. We sacrifice. Today, people are, it's all about me, me, me. It's not about the country. It's not, uh, mom baked bread every, twice, twice a week. She'd bake bread, cinnamon rolls, pies. For us and stuff, whatever we had to do, 
I don't think the kids' teeth and health, there wasn't dentists to take care of the kids' teeth. There were some guys, but they wanted to pry your mouth open, stick this thing to hold you. I bet the doctor wouldn't open my mouth. <laughs> you know, he kind of told my mom, get this kid out of here. I said, you're not sticking that in my mouth. But that's the way... Uh, Life was back then. Gasoline was racing. Tires were racing. <clears throat> you had to be the mayor or the chief of police in order to get the gas you needed. Or on the draft board, an old man sending other young people to war. <laughs> My uncle, he, he got, on, when he was young, he was on Vashon Island with my mom and us, and uh, he went up to a blackout, and the weather was bad and the wind was blowing. He went up a tree and put a lantern in the tree. And at night, the tree was throwing this wind blowing. It was, looked like somebody sending signals, and we had the Coast Guard, the Marine, the FBI. He left his ladder on the tree and they took the ladder around from house to house because there wasn't that many people. Do you recognize this ladder? And they finally caught my uncle for his prank and they made him milk cows, go shovel shit and milk cows across the bay. <laughs> that was his pay for pulling a prank during the war. They didn't appreciate it. But it just, uh, everything slowed down. All the men gone. The only things that were humming was our factories. Hmm. Oh, from Washington to Oregon, you can hear them factories hum. Making chrome and making manganese and fine aluminum. There is a flying fortress for to fight for Uncle Sam. It's the big Columbia River and the great Grand Coulee Dam. Woo! <laughs> yeah. History espionage, and a thriller. What do these things have to do with World War II and El Paso? Well, have you ever heard of the Sierra Diablo murders? Author Clint Richmond just released a historical true crime espionage thriller called Fetch the Devil, which talks about the Sierra Diablo murders and Nazi espionage in America. Near El Paso, on the eve of World War II. This book cites extensive evidence that was mostly obtained from recently disclassified FBI files on pre-war Nazi espionage on the West Coast and U.S.-Mexico border. The author's discovery of the original cold case file in archives in El Paso the book offers circumstantial evidence that finally provides answers to this decades-old mystery. The author concludes that the women were likely murdered in a 
bungled operation by the Axis spying, operating from the German consulate in San Francisco, with a portal to South America, run by a Nazi agent posing as a local doctor in El Paso. This book proves that El Paso isn't in the middle of nowhere. In fact, it's part of something bigger than we all think it is. If you want to read more about a California socialite and her beautiful sorority president daughter, then read Fetch the Devil by Clint Richmond. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Generation Gap, where we compare and contrast the gap between knowledge and four different generations. We interview five people and ask them the same set of questions about World War II. Let's see what they know. Question number one. When did World War II start? World War II started in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. 1914. I mean, I don't know the specific date, but I do know that it was late 1800s, I believe. World War II. Two started, I think, in 1995. Uh, World War II started in uh, well, for the United States. Or... For either or, choose. Okay. I'm pretty sure the United States entered the war in 1941, and the actual war started in 1935. 1939. And uh, 1942, I believe. After Germany invaded Poland. Mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, so started up. I believe it was, what, after Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. So it was very shortly after that we declared war, probably like the next day or whatever. Mm -hmm. 1942. In Europe, it started in 1939 when Hitler attacked Poland. In the United States, it started in 1941 when the United States was attacked by Japan and Pearl Harbor. That's okay. There are many options to choose from to answer this question. You could say Pearl Harbor, or when Germany attacked Poland, or September 1st, 1939, or when we got attacked on Pearl Harbor. After tallying the points together, we determined which generation knew the most about World War II. And, drum roll please, the winning generation is the Baby Boomers. Congratulations guys, as we expected, because the Baby Boomers are closer in generation to World War II, they are more than likely to know facts about the war itself. But thank you for watching, and see you next time on the New Tech Coffee Break. Question number one. When did World War II start?